You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we swallowed the key to these handcuffs and we're just stuck here waiting for it to pass. My name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, a man who has never had to knock on wood, but he knows someone who has. Right? Do you know where that's, do you even know where that came from? No. You laugh. You, you, Kevin, you told me to zhuzh up the laughter because sometimes <laughs> I don't laugh at your jokes because I don't get them. And then you're no, like, do you get I'm it? Do you get it? And I'm, I'm like, no, explain the fucking joke to me. Because you are an American now. You are an American now. And that is from the theme song that they never played the lyrics of, of America's Funniest Home Videos. Oh, I've never Which is a song that. by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones gotcha. called The Impression That I Get. Well, now you've riled me up and I was coming in for a calm episode full of academic discussion. And now I've been yelled at and told that I shouldn't laugh when I don't think things are funny. So we're going to have a very fucking quiet episode. Oh, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. Better luck to the real question of the day. Mm, that's you can have any hot sandwich that you want. Ooh, Which one are you choosing? Ooh, ooh Philly cheesesteak. Philly Philly cheesesteak for me. Ooh, Philly is that because your wife is from Philadelphia? Uh, it, it, I think it's the well, p- partly, and that's that then led to it being <laughs> it being the first hot sandwich I had in the U.S. Uh huh. Okay. So, yeah, that that's it for me. Or a, or a chicken palm, like a chicken yeah, palm. Yeah, either one. I'll go with you. I'll one go of with the you two. On the chicken palm. That's a damn good sandwich. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But for me, I gotta say. It's the Cubano. Ooh, I like a Cubano Love too, me. but only yes. only with the plantains. If you've got plantains in there and some of that green sauce, whoo! I don't care about that. Oh, it's just all shit. about the ham. No, no, no. no. You gotta the have ham, the plantains. The pork, the pickles, the mustard, and that that crispy bread. Oh man, it's, it's good. Just a it's good. But for me, the maduros are what makes it. You gotta have some uh, mm. some 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 sweet plantains in there. Absolutely, all down with that. We we just agree that food is good. Food is great. Uh, we Honestly, just agree about about food being good this week. We're, it's worked we're, out pretty well. We're starting a side <laughs> podcast where we just talk about food. And if you can go to Benedict, go, is this food good? Go yes, go Kevin, fun. This food is good. Well, we'll see you next week. <laughs> well, no, but then occasionally we could throw people off, being like, Benedict, is this sandwich a hot dog? And like, what? That's the oh, wrong God. way around for a start. Uh, well, anyways. Is a Cubano a hot dog? <laughs> Multiple types of pork inside of bread with mustard. <laughs> Damn it, you might have me on that one. <laughs> Benedict, you probably know. I do. Listeners might not. I'm sure they do. But let's what tell exactly them anyways. That we do here on this program. To them, I would say this is the show where we go deep, 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 deep into. One day you have to do deep, deep, deep. 
if I can figure out how to do an echo in real time, because I don't want to spend the time in post-production doing that, <laughs> uh, deep into the freezer drawer of life, searching for the lone, final, six months expired, freezer-burned hot pocket of right-wing thoughts. Hot pocket. That is, uh, thanks, Mr. Gaffigan. That is what we do here <laughs> on this program. But if you want to start us off this week, you have... A hot take for yeah, us. Yeah, I do. And it's the Social Security Administration is everything people say the post office is. Because <laughs> I have spent I, I spent two hours today on hold with the Social Security Administration. Yeah. They did not pick up my phone call. And then, look, he, look, do you know what? The... It was so bad. It was so bad <laughs> that after 20 minutes, they stopped playing the whole music and the thank you for waiting oh, and just let it ring for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> so they were like, listen, nobody's waiting this long. After 20 minutes, people are hanging up the phone. Not me. I sat there for a full hour each time and never, ever, ever got through. So look, there are only two acceptable hold uh, programs. Or maybe, maybe three, maybe three acceptable hold programs out there one is the, the best it's the one where they say oh if you'd like us to call it call you back yeah, when you're the cool. first in line hit number one that's the way that that's, they all should be really. that's capitalism baby yeah that's that's just the way it should work you just call me back when it's my time that that would make perfect sense because i'm on the phone you can get my phone number that all sounds good that's the only one i really want the other one is the one which plays like nostalgic 80s music that for some reason they have a license to play on the phone, but I don't know how that works. It's really great. Like, if they're playing some good Steely Dan tracks, I can get down. I can get down if they're playing Ricky right. Don't Lose That Number okay. uh, on the hold line. Number three, the system that doesn't exist, but I think should exist, is one where uh, when you call somewhere that has a hold program, you are able to play whatever your favorite podcast is, namely this podcast. <laughs> Instead of hearing whatever hold music they had planned for you, that's what they should do. Do, do you know in that, all those situations. like honestly, don't let them choose. Just play this podcast. Broadcast <laughs> us to the nation that way. Look, we we need to meet some hackers who can make this whole system work for us. But yeah, I hear it. You're an American now. Now you have to deal with uh, what all of us us true Americans. Go well, I'm through. just trying to register as an American. <laughs> that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to change from a, a permanent resident to be an American. Better, if you if you needed a gun, thirty seconds. If you yeah, need to exactly. get a, a vital to... piece of information relevant to your actual yeah. participation in our democracy, if it's I need to take change you weeks, my social buddy. security status so that I can vote in the upcoming elections. Hmm, don't know. Um, what about you? What's your hot take? Make me laugh. Uh, my hot take this week, Benedict. Uh, quitting nicotine Ooh. is easier than it sounds, but still really hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I have also done this, and I did yeah. not smoke as much as you do. No. Uh, I smoked, like, literally two stress cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, when, when my stress reached yeah. a point where I was like, okay, I need to just go outside. Then I, that's like, I was a two-a-day two kind of person. I yeah. also quit. I have to say it's much easier when someone's like, yeah, I'm not going to kiss you unless you don't smoke. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot more of an incentive. Um, yeah, uh, and I just date trash, so yeah. I've never had that problem. <laughs> but, like, you know, I, for the time when I was a mechanic, I was smoking a pack a day regularly. Well, I mean, you're already taking um, in so much exhaust smoke. Like, what's the harm? Please don't well, listen to me, kids. Well, true, like, true. Like, <laughs> and then after that, you know, I was pretty much, after that in college, I was like a half a pack a day. Um, and half then a, half a into, 20 pack. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> that was like half a pack a day. And then I got into law school and I cut it down to like, you know, five a day. Is this including your um, chewing tobacco though? 
Well, I went, so I went off and on. Uh, I would smoke for a while until the coughing got really bad. Then I'd go to chewing tobacco until the heartburn got too bad. And then maybe I'd go back to smoking or I'd go to smoking uh, these little cheap uh, cigars that I would always get in the backwoods. You'd buy them at gas stations. Mm. So I would flip around between my various nicotine sources. Didn't you vape too <laughs> for a bit? Well, I did. I did. Uh, when you and I first started podcasting, I was vaping. Uh, and then I just started smoking again. And then recently, uh, I went back to the va- the vape as a means to taper off of nicotine entirely, and it has finally worked this time. Uh, I am finally no longer smoking anything. I still have the vape, but the vape juice, you know, I started off with like the most nicotine, and then I went to the medium nicotine, and then I went to the low nicotine, and then I just went to no nicotine. Um, and so... I'm still like using it a little bit just because the flavor and it sort of gives me a little bit of that memory, uh, not not the chemical addiction part, but maybe the physical addiction part of smoking, mm-hmm. of having, you know, breathing in something into your lungs. Uh, but it's been now about two weeks, I think, since I've had any nicotine in my body, um, which is a different experience for me. <laughs> How much caffeine are you drinking? Oh, so well, I've yeah. always been a caffeine. I know, addict. me too. But I, I was I, always I, definitely a caffeine addict, anyway. That was what got me through the headaches. It's just like, oh, I'll just mm. drink three espressos instead. Like, yeah, yeah, this is just popping ibuprofen in the morning. I'm good to go. But uh, I'm finally done with it. Um, and you know, like I said, it's hard, but it is a little bit. I was a little surprised how like I don't feel like cravings. Maybe it's because I've managed to trick myself and with all the tapering uh, off that yeah. I've done. I mean, I, I just replaced it with other stuff, so I replaced yeah. it with caffeine and food. So I, I just don't really feel any cravings, and I, I feel good. I'm finally uh, nicotine-free. Good for you. So anyways, Ben, let's move on a little bit. What is on your bookshelf this week? What should they be reading uh, instead of the garbage we do? It is a book called Beautiful Country, which is about a... Mm, uh, J.D. Vance's new novel. Um... <laughs> It is, it is a memoir, uh, not quite in the same vein. Um, it's about a Chinese, uh, Chinese-American woman that immigrated to the U.S. when she was young, and it's about her family's experience as undocumented immigrants uh, in New York in the uh, 90s-ish um, and how, she, how she's grown up and it, with that fear and all that stuff, everything that comes along with that. Um, and she was inspired to write it by, by Trump's election, as you would maybe of, maybe of imagine yeah. so yeah yeah uh came out this year it's it's pretty good um i'm i'm reading it currently so i i would recommend that to people i think it's an interesting perspective on just events really and and how shitty it is to be undocumented and the amount of unnecessary fear that causes for people on top of just having to stay alive which yeah, is what we're all sure trying you- to do day to day just trying to get by my man yeah. and not be murdered by the social security administration that's right what about you what's your book uh, I'm not recommending a book. You know it, Why? damn it. Look. Benedict, this week, <laughs> I am recommending the upcoming Netflix relief. Oh, is it Cowboy Bebop? Yeah, of course. Of Cowboy, Cowboy motherfucking Bebop. I saw it's that tweet. It's finally here. I saw that We've tweet. We've been waiting for this for so goddamn long. Okay, define we. So long. Define we. Um, nerds. Okay, not All me, of us though. nerds not have been me. waiting for this. So, you know, like, I, I this year was the year of the anime for me. I finally started getting into it, and I've been basically just binge-watching anime all year long. But before this, the only anime, other than, you know, a couple things here and there, like Gundam and whatever, uh, and, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons you and I had a kid, the only real anime experience I had was Cowboy Bebop, because that's what they played late nights on Cartoon Network 
in the 90s and early 2000s. Like, it was always Cowboy Bebop, and it was just the freaking coolest. And it still is the freaking coolest. And uh, it's, you know, it was one of the greatest animes ever made. They've adapted. I'm sure I'm going to be disappointed. I'm sure I'm going to be incredibly disappointed with the live adaptation. Yeah, but sure. They got Yoko Kano, who did the music for the animated series, which, if you know anything about it, is such an important part of how good that show is. Uh, she's doing the live series. They got some good actors. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be Cowboy Bebop. It's not a direct adaptation of the show, but it's still going to be fun, I hope. And I'll be angry about it, and I'll rage tweet about all the things that piss me off about it, but... I'm still going to watch every single episode and be super excited for it. It comes out in November, uh, but I just, they, they put out the um, opening sequence the other day. You said you saw when I retweeted it. No, I just, uh, I saw it on, I saw, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, just saw it. Yeah, and it, and it, was like, it Kevin's looks gonna love this shit. freaking cool. It just looks as, because the, the original uh, animated opening sequence is one of the coolest pieces of animation ever done. Uh, and they, they managed to make a pretty damn cool version of the live action one so i'm freaking excited um you should definitely go watch the original animated series cowboy bebop it's on hulu and all those places and definitely watch the live action one when it comes out on netflix that's that's my recommendation this week benedict why don't we move on a little bit to housekeeping first off remember to rate and view us on itunes and remember that if the cowboy bebop live action series is not good it is your fault the listener because you didn't leave us enough reviews on iTunes. That's all I'll say about it this mm -hmm. week. Uh, follow us on the social medias, uh, at NYGBCPod on Twitter. And I should mention our patron-only bonus episode. Uh, the most recent one is now available over at patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. We did another chapter of None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen. Benedict was very nonplussed. Yes. <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> it was a bit disturbing, the level of anti-Semitism that came to the surface in this chapter. And it was as we, we talked about it before. We'll talk about it a thousand times going forward. I'm sure how if you just take all the things the Nazis said and change it from Jews to another group, it's still it's still bad. It's yeah. still bad. You're still doing bad stuff, especially when a lot of the people you're targeting are still Jews. You're bad people. Um but that's over there. That's available. And uh, we're going to be doing more soon. I mentioned over there that we're probably going to be doing uh, an extra one in the month of October to make up for uh, you know last couple months when I was doing the bar exam and moving down here, all that, where we uh, skipped them a little bit. So we're going to be trying to catch up on that. Anyways, Benedict, we also have this new update section on the show, mm. which, especially since we have very little to talk about of substance in the book this week, I thought it would be important. I have some more updates, and I, I like this because I think... If we forget all the things we've done in the past, everywhere that we come from, um, I think we miss out on, okay. on some of the, the stuff that, that comes after we're done with a particular individual. And Benedict, I got to take us back today, way, way, way back to the very beginning. Mm, to Dinesh, Dinesh. We're going to Dinesh that. D'Souza. Let's do it. Dinesh D'Souza was um, our first love, if I dare mm. say. <laughs> Uh, it was the first book review may, that we ever did. It was maybe our first bump. Like. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it's not a big update from Dinesh D'Souza. He's still an idiot. But I did think 
Is uh, he in his, jail again? No, no. His, Under house tweet, arrest? He had a tweet that went somewhat viral uh, where he tweeted out, quote, I wonder if history will view January 6th in retrospect as America's Tiananmen Square. Desperate protesters seeking to have their voices heard. Vicious government crackdown and prosecution. No dissent policy enforced across society via mass censorship and one-party media. So that's that's where he's at, which is not a great place to be. No. (laughs) He's not been in a great place for a while. No, but I did think it it was good to bring him up today and remind everyone that he wrote for National Review. Mm, interesting. <laughs> the extended universe. Which, uh, if this is your first episode you've ever listened to our podcast, will become clear why that matters as we continue on today. Other updates. Uh, this isn't actually an update from the patron-only bonus, uh, I think, where I brought up some of the alumni of Madison Cawthorn's uh, college. Um, I mentioned to you that one of the people I found only notable because they had died from H1N1. Mm. I did just want to update that uh, I found the number of people who died from H1N1 worldwide. It's between 150,000 and 550,000. That's worldwide. quite a lot. Uh, it's a lot less than COVID. Yeah. Um, it's a lot less than basically anything else. Uh, you know, that's uh, just my point. That why I think that was much more notable than that person having written for the Federalist. Mm. Um, also wanted to bring up, as relates again to the patron only bonus, uh, I did go and look because I, I was curious afterwards whether Glenn Beck is on the CFR tip, the Council on Foreign Relations, which it was um, part of the chapter we did for the patron only. He talked a little bit about the CFR, it's part of his conspiracy. The next chapter we're doing for the patron only of None Dare Call It Conspiracy is all about the CFR. He goes in heavy on the CFR. I did manage to find uh, a a write-up in The New American, which is the John Birch Society magazine, which was praising Glenn Beck for saying that the CFR is part of this conspiracy that, uh, you know, runs the world. All the usual John Birch Society stuff. So... Glenn Beck was in on the CFR tip. Just wanted to bring that up there. We know about the connections between uh, the John Birch Society and Glenn Beck. We know that's there. Gary Allen, obviously a John Birch Society member. I think his book was published through the John Birch Society originally. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think so. Other updates, Benedict. Little ones. Madison Cawthorn. Um, I did. I just found another thing in my notes that I forgot to mention, where he um, had called himself throughout his campaign uh, the CEO of his real estate company, SPQ, SPQR. Mm. Um, well, Benedict, technically correct that he was the CEO. He was also the president, the founder, the sole shareholder, and the only employee of SPQR. So I just wanted to point out... It's another one of those areas where he was distorting his own record Mm. and using obvious bullshit to try and help his campaign. Great. Good stuff. Love that for him. Very good stuff. But also, Benedict, we do have today for you a little video. Uh, Just to start off the episode, because as I mentioned, there's not much to talk about in what we read I think there's more to talk about than you think there is. (laughs) Well, but Benedict, Madison Cawthorn put out a little uh, fun little video the other day. A little fun video he put out on uh, Twitter and I think Instagram. It's less than a minute long. And this went a little bit viral. I think some of the people saying that this is him calling for a holy war is taking it a little too far. It's just the usual fundamentalist Christian nationalism. It's okay. just, I mean, we know he wants a theocracy. Well, let's just do it. But, it's fine. Uh, Don't interrupt it too much. Let's go. There it is. 
It is time for us to stand up and say no to your tyranny. Now is a time for our pastors and our congregations, like this one here, like many of you that you represent. It's time for us to stand up and declare boldly that as men and women of faith, we have a duty to stand against tyranny. We have a duty to be civically involved. We have a duty to save this country for the next generation. Back into so he has said nothing. He's no. just, it's just platitude after platitude. Is that his voice? That is his voice. The whole that thing is, is his voice. That is not how I expected him to sound. But also, the, the audio mixing, they, they turned up the background music way too loud. It's, yeah. it's definitely way too loud. But there's, one, there's only one thing in here I found funny. We'll give, it'll come up in just a few seconds. Look into the Old Testament. Look at David. Look at Daniel. Look at Esther. Look at all these people who influenced the governments of their day to uphold Christian principles. What? Yes, you picked up on exactly what I thought was funny. You oh, saw it. God, God, oh, yeah, David, Daniel, yeah. and Esther—those oh, well, uh, Jews holding up Christian values. Huge news for King David, <laughs> who somehow managed to influence his his government. <laughs> I always thought that was—I thought that was great. I mean, it does to some extent go back. I'm sure someone who was trying to apologize for that obviously stupid comment because. It's Madison Cawthorn. We know he's an idiot. Um, yeah. But someone who had to come up and clean up behind him would say, oh, well, you know, uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, which isn't a thing, but we pretend it is. You know, that's what he's talking about there, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but Let's he didn't say it. that. It's about 30 seconds left. Let's just finish this thing. No. It is time for the American Christian Church to come out of the shadows, to say no longer are we going to allow our culture to be determined by people who hate the things that we believe in. We are going to stand valiantly for God's, God's incredible, inerrant truths that predate any version of government. Because my friends, if we lose this country today, if we bend the knee to the Democrats today, our country will be lost forever and our children will never know what freedom is. It's our duty to stand up. Let us stand united as men and women of faith to fight for our country. It is time. And that's it. That's it. That's okay. bad. Yeah, that's not bad. Worth, not worth it. Um, also, uh, there were very much forms of government that predate the Jewish uh, religion and and all that by by many many years. So yeah. That China mostly. Yeah. Um, yeah, China. <laughs> so yeah, that's the new uh, the new Manny Cawthorn ad. There, fun stuff. We also, Benedict, and I'm not going to make you do this, but uh, if we have time at the end of the episode, I do have another uh, floor speech from Madison Cawthorn that he made after we recorded that episode, uh, which I thought was fun. So if we have any time at the end of the episode, we'll go to that. But, Benedict, that's all the housekeeping for this week. Good stuff. And with that out of the way, we begin our book review of God and Man at Yale, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., mm. America's itchy back mole that we probably should pay to have taken care of benedict what did we read this week well kevin this week we read the introductions which are basically the many mythologies of william f buckley yes many mythologies but all somehow eerily similar to one another i well uh, maybe yeah i mean we'll get into that but i think that there's some there's some even within the seven introductions that this book has there's some lack of clarity <laughs> about i you know it's it's well, this, this is, these are all different bullshit artists trying to put out their exactly, own bullshit exactly but, but it's this it's this titanic and they're also i mean we should say they're all written at different at different times yeah so one's the one's the foreword by buckley one's the foreword that came with the original one's an introduction 
um he does one which we're not gonna do uh yes. that he prefaced the 25th anniversary edition of we, we'll talk about it but we're not gonna go all the way through it yeah. and then there's a 50th anniversary one and i think a 70th anniversary one which is the I, michael Knowles one damn it. i don't remember um, how we are doing three of them so this is yeah it, it's it's roughly 20 it's the original then 50 years then 20 years yeah, because these introductions are such a large part of the book, by which I mean just page count. Literally, wise, physically, a large such part. A of large the book. part of the book that we were like, okay, we can't ignore them. We have to do them. Um, yeah. And so we decided this week, the first week here, we're going to do the introductions. Mm. This is how we're going to start it off. Uh, next week, we will actually get to chapter one. Yeah, so, and I, it's instructive because I was saying to Kevin before we we came on the air, like, and normally I don't pay much attention to introductions. But I think for someone like Buckley, you kind of have to um, just because it provides a lens through which to read the rest of the book yes. and also provides a lens through. I, I, I don't really care much what authors have to say about their own work, um, which is why I am somewhat loath to read introductions a lot of the time, because I think it it colors one's perception of the work itself too much. And normally, if I read an introduction, I'd read it at the end. But I think it's useful to see how contemporaries and now our contemporaries read buckley and see buckley because it, yeah. it, it provides us a way of seeing how he's he's aged and how his his legacy is viewed contemporaneously um rather than how buckley views his own work which yeah. i think is less interesting well we talked about it during the introduction to buckley and i think it's going to be a running theme you know we all, always sort of have a running theme throughout all of these books that we do i think uh, with Glenn Beck, it was sort of the the John Birch connection that was what mm -hmm. I focused on the most. Um, going back to like uh, the the Russia hoax one, it was the snowball of inferences mm. that I kept talking about. How he would just increase the you know have all these suppositions and things he didn't prove, and then moving on, just pretend as though he had proved them and and keep m rolling through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had all, we, throughout all these people we've read, we've sort of had one thing that that ties us to the book. And for Buckley, I think I agree with you. It's going to be that the way people see Buckley is much mm -hmm. more important than anything Buckley ever actually said or did. Yeah. Because, as we've talked about, he is a vile racist, a bigot, and a know-nothing moron. And, and that, I, I actually think, to be fair to Michael Knowles, I think he has the clearest-eyed vision of what yes, Buckley is. which was weird. Yeah. Which was very weird. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I well, don't know we'll if it's get, a we'll clear-eyed vision, but it's um, it's almost that accidentally falling into the correct thing. No, I don't, I don't think it is accidental. I think, I think he wants Buckley to be a certain thing mm -hmm. um, and writes that he is that thing, and I think it's the least wrong of the interpretations of Buckley. We'll see. We'll, we'll see when we get to it. Okay, but anyways... Sure. That's we, what I think. We'll start with Buckley's own introduction, will we? Yes, yeah, so we'll start with Buckley's own introduction to the original uh, version of this book, which again came out in 1951. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I can edit my burp out there. Yeah, I hope so. It's not Do you want to just the... say it again? No. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can edit out. And if I can't edit it out, I'm going to leave all this in about me talking about sure. how I want to edit it out. That's how we do this show. Sure. We know how things work around here. Yep. But so this was written presumably when the book came out, 1951. Yeah, this is uh, with the first edition of the book. Yeah, he had graduated from Yale in 1950. Mm -hmm. And so this is him writing, you know, a year afterwards, looking back about just the book he had just written. He didn't directly go to Yale. So he was 24 when this came out. He wasn't 22. Yes. Yeah, so he'd, he'd spent remember, a couple of years in the army. Yes, he had that two that two year stint in the army that he had done when he was drafted, and uh, and then he went to Yale. So he starts off his own preface saying, "Quote: 
During the years 1946 to 1950, I was an undergraduate at Yale University. I arrived in New Haven fresh from a two-year stint in the Army, and I brought with me a firm belief in Christianity and a profound respect for American institutions and traditions. I had always been taught and experience had fortified the teachings that an active faith in God and a rigid adherence to Christian principles are the most powerful influences toward the good life. Also, I would point out that being born into a wealthy oil family probably helps, helps in yep. getting along towards that good life as well. Yeah. There are plenty he... of, of young children born in Veracruz who have a strong uh, Christian principles and somehow don't manage to get that good life I, that Buckley had. I don't think that's what he means by good life. I think you're doing him a slight disservice there, yeah, but sure. Sure, sure. I, I, but I'm not going to miss the opportunity to shit on him. Fine. But yes, yeah, so he continues this on, and, and it basically continues along that thread. And I should say a little bit, just uh, to give you an idea of what this book is about in general, it's only about five chapters long. Mm -hmm. And there are three main thrusts to this entire book. First, Yale sucks because it's too secular mm -hmm. in 1950. Second, <laughs> Yale sucks because they're all a bunch of socialist commies. Because they accept Keynesian economics, which history time has proven out to be the correct economic uh, system that works and which the models hold, whatever. And three, that all the alumni of Yale should withhold their donations until the school decides to turn into a Catholic fascist theocracy that only teaches... Uh, Milton Friedman, I yeah. guess. I mean, that's that's essentially the conclusion is that alumni should boycott the school. Yeah. Um, and that the the school has a uh, responsibility to its board of trustees to teach Catholicism as the main thing, um, which is fine. So, yeah, I mean, he says he said he 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 turned up at Yale eager to find allies against secularism and collectivism yes. again. 1950. 1950 1946 actually yeah, not even exactly. 1950 <laughs> exactly but he continues from that and i love this paragraph he says quote i am one of a small group of students who fought during undergraduate days in the columns of the newspaper in the political union in debates and seminars against those who seek to subvert religion and individualism and remember we learned uh from george soros that subversion can be fun um, quote, continuing, the fight we waged continues, even though little headway was made. The struggle was never more bitter than when the issue concerned educational policy. And that sort of goes along with, remember, he wrote this when the book came out. All the other introductions that we read that were written many years later sort of said, well, you know, he really failed. This book didn't have any actual impact. Yeah, but it did establish <laughs> him as a fire, somewhat of a firebrand, yeah. Yeah, which I really just, I really do love the fact that this is held up as one of those great conservative books, and they all have to admit, well, I mean, yeah, it was a huge failure in didn't, not didn't doing do at anything, all what it was attempting yeah. to do. So, yeah, their greatest successes are also their massive failures. But it's I, wonderful. I mean, he, he pretty openly, within page, you know, the second page of the introduction, says, my goal is an authoritarian one. Not explicitly, mm -hmm. but he says, I want the board of trustees to feel like they have no option but to instruct staff to teach what I think should be taught, which yep. is individualism, which is here he uses uh, as the opposite of collectivism. So, um, you know, free market economics, etc., And Catholicism, like Christianity should be the basis. Um, and, and 
some people try and soften the argument and say, oh, well, all he's saying is that that should be one, you know, if, if free speech and freedom and marketplace of ideas is so important, then Catholicism and, and free market should be one of the ideas that people are taught as if like, yeah, that means anything. But, but that's, that's not what he says. Saying, no, that's all he wants. Yeah, that should exactly. Be the only things that matter because he wants to censor views that he sees as heinous. Yeah, exactly. Which is anything that he, he, here's the other thing. He keeps using the words atheist and agnostic in this book, uh, completely both interchangeably and inappropriately. Um, so he'll call people who just maybe um, aren't as Christian as he would like them, right? People who would go to a mass done in English rather than in Latin, he mm. would probably call agnostic, right? When that's completely inappropriate and that's stupid. And that's one of the things that we have to drill down on is a lot of his criticism uh, about the the school not being Christian enough is just not, oh, they're not fundamentalists like me, mm-hmm. which is is not uh, not good enough for him. Or it's, it's the not problem. the basis of the teaching. Exactly. Um, and so he continues on. It's, it's a very short. It's only a couple pages, this original introduction that he did. But. It's quite funny, though, because like, th- there's a bit in it that's after the bit that we just talked about where he's like, I didn't really want to write this book because <laughs> I don't think I'm good enough. At, like I he, basically, he was like, yeah, there's no scholarly pretension behind this book. It's just a polemic. Like mm-hmm. he's like, I don't really have very much evidence for this. It's just my observations. Like I haven't done scholarly surveys. Like I didn't talk to anyone at the grad school. Like this is just what I've observed on campus. Yeah. It really which, is like, strange that he just admits, ah, it's just me talking shit about people I knew. Yeah, which fine. I mean, at least he admits it, honestly. Like, but like the fact that this has become like such a cornerstone of, of conservative, yeah, complaints. Yeah, like, it's like uh, when we were looking at what book to do next. You sent me a uh, link to a website, the YAF website, which mm. was uh, the Young America's Foundation, which Buckley helped found. And of course, this book is listed on there. It was a, a page that was books every conservative should read, something like that. So of course they had this. They had multiple books written by you know David Horowitz that out now bigot we've talked about. They had Pat Buchanan's book where he cites directly. Wow, we've got to do Pat Buchanan sometime. God, I can't imagine that'll be painful. That'll yeah. be one of those ones that's just painful. But you're right; we probably will have to. Well, he was the he's the proto Trump was Pat Buchanan. Yeah, when you talk about, I think something that we sort of track, uh, especially that we're going back now, and that I try to do with the John Birch stuff the increasing level of acceptable craziness Mm. in what we could call the mainstream right-wing thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to John Birch, and then we're going to talk, obviously, about Buckley and how he helped mainstream some of that bullshit. Remember, he was a McCarthyite. He screamed that everything that was socialism that wasn't, you know, what Ayn Rand would masturbate to. Um, So, you know, the sort of the mainline, Pat Buchanan is along that path of mainlining extremism, but he was mainlining a little bit of a different kind of extremism, sort of the uh, fundamentalist, uh, white supremacist militia movement of the 80s and 90s was where Pat Buchanan was was part of mainstreaming that and mainlining that for the Republican Party. Uh, there were others obviously involved in that effort, but he was one of the big players uh-huh. in that particular type of, of mainlining. So you're right. We probably will have to talk about Pat Buchanan someday. Yeah. I don't know whether we'll do a book of his or whether maybe we'll do him as in, you know, some series of interstitials or something. We'll see what we do. I I think my favorite bit of the introduction is the the last couple pages, though. Yeah. Uh, When he basically is like, 
Yeah, I'm not going to make the argument that Christianity and the free market are good. <laughs> like, I, I'm just going to take that as red and then bitch about people who disagree. Like, it's literally, he's like, I, I am, what does he say? I will proceed on the assumption that Christianity and freedom are good without ever worrying that by so doing, I am being presumptuous. Yep. Yep, he does. And it's also a sort of thing where you have to pay attention where, again, going back to his his definition of Christianity, which mm-hmm. uh, I've only skimmed the main chapters of the book so far. I haven't read them. I don't know if he ever bothers to even define it, uh, as well as, you know, uh, into the individualism he keeps talking about and socialism, those sort of things. We'll see if he gives us a workable definition of any of those. I have a baseline assumption that he won't, Mm -hmm. right? Remember how Glenn Beck gave us multiple definitions of socialism that were all different from one another? Um, I have a feeling he might do the same thing because that leaves him open with that flexibility to call anything he doesn't like, even if it is Mm -hmm. Christianity or even if it is free market capitalism, to call it those words that he doesn't like. Yeah. Uh, collectivism, socialism, atheism, whatever, those sorts of things. Yeah, but I, I thought that was interesting. And then I just want to pick up on one more thing in the um, in the introduction, and then I'll, I'll let you say anything else you want to say. Just something I thought was interesting from uh, the second to last page or third to last page. Mm-hmm. He says... I myself, this is a quote, I myself believe that the duel between Christianity and atheism is the most important in the world. I further believe that the struggle between individualism and collectivism is the same struggle reproduced on another level. Yeah. Which seems very odd to me. Well, it goes back to, you know, screen in the 1950s and 60s, they would always say, you know, it's godless communism because, mm-hmm. you know, the Soviet Union was officially an atheist country. No, I, I get that. But when you think about kind of the flock of God, like you think that, you know, collectivism is more individualism is not particularly a very Christian concept. True. But it also it goes along those sorts of things uh you know he hasn't defined collectivism for us yet right uh but he would i think or i don't know maybe he wouldn't maybe the the strain of thought hadn't developed yet to where dinesh d'souza is saying that the nazis were actually socialists or whatever um but he might say something like that uh the nazis and mussolini they were the same problem because there was one of the uh introductory authors here who was arguing along those lines which was that uh fascism uh, Buckley had uh, the equal uh, opposition to because of its godlessness, because Buckley believed that all totalitarianism, not necessarily just all collectivism, as that term is used here, comes from atheism. Mm-hmm. He thinks that they're the same. And to them, I would just say, well, you know, phalangism, uh, you know, yeah. you are a Catholic fascist. You don't believe that. But it's all about, you know, changing your definitions whenever necessary to make them fit whatever you think they are. Obviously, you know, you and I are atheists. Um, we don't believe totalitarianism is a good thing. Um, so Depends. I think that's no, okay. all, it's all the proof that I need to say that uh, atheism doesn't necessarily lead to totalitarianism or collectivism, whatever yeah, the case I, might I, be. I, j- I just think it's a... His friend Ayn Rand was yeah. an atheist. <laughs> yeah, I just th- I, I think they're clashing concepts. I don't I don't think it's the same struggle writ writ small. True. No, um, no. I think you could easily make the opposite argument that yep. in fact Christianity or religion is inherently collectivist. It is, oh, and I, that I would make that argument. I think. Yes, yes, we would agree. I would agree it, with it, you. It, on it that. tends towards collectivism anyway. Yeah. Or it should. 
It should. Absolutely. Maybe maybe American Christianity doesn't. Sure. But I Wait, think no, I think no, no, yeah. no, it does. It does. Anyways, we agree on that, Benedict. There isn't really anything else interesting. The rest is just sort of uh this is all about me at Yale. Uh there's appendices for documentation. There's stuff in there. Yeah. Uh read the book, enjoy it, be patient with me. That's all the sort of stuff. And it ends. That's the beginning. Yeah. That's the end of his preface to the book now, and then I, I think well i think it's worthwhile just quickly um saying a couple of things that struck me about the 25th anniversary preface which we're mm-hmm. not going to do yeah. but just just a couple of things that, that which was written by buckley by buckley 25 years later yeah. a couple of things that jumped out at me first of all he's just a whiny whiny person oh yeah because he's, he, so he's uh, like 25 years later he has all the receipts from all the bad reviews that the book here's got. everyone who made fun of me in my book exactly. now i'm gonna talk about them when they're mostly dead yeah like not doing criticism anymore exactly it was very funny um and then the other thing i thought was interesting just as a uh in terms of the current conservative movement is his emphasis on only speaking on something when you have that lived experience Mm -hmm. because he says i'm no longer the right person to write about yale like so why am i why am i reissuing this book why not just write a new one etc and he says, I can only talk about what I've lived and I don't think people should talk about or pretend to talk about what they haven't themselves lived in the context of this book. Benedict. But it's interesting that that doesn't Benedict. stop him or conservatives Benedict. from... Yeah, go Is ahead. Is he an early critical race theorist? Is that what you're trying <laughs> yeah, to tell me about maybe. Buckley? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Bill Buckley. Because there is, in the actual critical race theory, which is a legal movement under which yeah. I studied under one of the preeminent professors of critical race theory, there is a movement to say that personal lived experiences matter more oftentimes than statistical analyses exactly. or things that's, like that. that. That's That was the point I was raising. Yeah. Like we, yeah. we get so much shit for talking about lived experience. And the whole basis of reissuing this book and him not writing a new one is saying, I don't feel comfortable talking about things that I'm not familiar with. Oh, so, so we have found a way in which he is different from every one of the Dinesh D'Souza's. Yeah, he's a critical the race theorist. <laughs> well, but, those that, but every one of the right wing uh, colleges are all socialist indoctrination camp grifters. The mm-hmm. Charlie Kirk's Charlie Kirk college dropout. Mm-hmm. Or, or didn't even attend. I don't remember which one it is with Charlie Kirk. Um, basically, everyone who ever wrote a book or did a podcast or whatever on the right wing about how terrible colleges are either didn't go to college, have no idea what's actually going in colleges, or went 40 years ago and yeah. don't know what the fuck is actually going on. Today. Well, it's, it's interesting because like he writes that in his book, but it also doesn't stop him debating what it's like to be a black person in america yeah with yeah. with james baldwin <laughs> at the cambridge union so like <laughs> interesting yeah well he did write that after the debate with baldwin maybe maybe he saw the but, error yeah. of his way as like fuck i can't ever talk about yeah, anything maybe. i haven't lived again if i try and do that then baldwin's just gonna come back and slap me again <laughs> So let's go now to the other, uh, in one of the other introductions. I think they'll do the 50th one next. Yes, yeah. yes. So this is by Austin W. Bramwell, who we will talk about a little bit at the end of it. And it is titled, and ben, I know I didn't ask you for alternate chapter titles because we're doing the introduction, it's a whole thing, but I did write my own okay. alternate introduction title for this. His title is The Revolt Against the Establishment, God and Man at Yale at, at 50. 
and I just wrote down uh, rage in favor of the machine. God <laughs> and man at Yale at 50. Because that's, that's really just, what this is. The, the God and man and Yale at 50, just the scansion of that is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, yep. Just the way, it, and that, that's how I read this chapter. Yep. So he starts this off by saying, quote, The year 2001 marked the golden anniversary of the publication of one of the seminal books in modern American conservatism, William F. Buckley Jr.'s God and Man at Yale. That is so sad that this is one of the seminal books of modern American conservatism. I think it's right, though. I I mean, I don't think that's wrong. Mm, I, I mean, I get what you mean that it's correct that it is, but it is still sad that that's the case well i haven't read it yet so i I will not pass judgment (laughs) but yeah but he continues with his pretentious wankery quote (laughs) less than less than a generation after lionel trilling famously opined that in the united states at this time liberalism is not only the dominant but even the sole intellectual tradition it's really funny when someone is trying to be trilling while simultaneously (laughs) clearly mad at trilling yeah Lionel Trilling's an interesting character. We'll talk about him someday. He says, quote, continuing, Buckley had in large part caused the liberal consensus to unravel. For all its fame, however, God and Man at Yale is a noteworthy as a failure Mm -hmm. as it is as a success. Buckley's call for Yale alumni to withhold financial support until Yale ceased to undermine her students' faith in Christianity and the free market went almost entirely unheeded. Which is a good thing. (laughs) Yes, it's very much a good thing. Today, Yale is more secular and left-wing than ever. Couldn't have anything to do with the fact that all those right-wingers are just wrong morally. Couldn't possibly doesn't matter. Moving on. Well, I also also think there's probably... uh there's just more space to be left wing now that the Soviet Union's not around. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But it's also going back to what I brought up with Dinesh D'Souza. Um, all these right wingers that we're talking, you know, Buckley himself was pro segregation. We read him talking about yep. being pro segregation. He was pro segregation when he wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Conservatism was not, as Dinesh D'Souza likes to lie about it, anti segregation and pro civil rights. That's oh. bullshit. Yes. The parties may have diff- been different, but who was conservative and who was liberal, whatever uh, labels you want to put on them, there was a different mix of what the ideologies under those labels were. But sure as shit, it was the conservatives who were pro-segregation, uh, whether they were Republicans or Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, continuing on, he says, quote, To be sure, the social prestige of men such as Bundy and Coffin, these are two uh, people from Yale who criticized the book when it came out, could only exist within a Christian society whose mainline churches dominated the universities and in turn the government and the culture. Ironically, had the old Yale scions only followed Buckley's prescriptions, they might not have seen their regime crumble around them in the 1960s. What I read from that is an argument that, well, if we had just been more fundamentalist right-wingers, the summer of love wouldn't have happened? Yeah, I guess. Like, that's what it seems like to me. And this is from, remember, this is from a kid. I, I'll just say now, this guy, Willie uh, Bramley, or whatever his name is, um, he was uh, at Harvard Law School in 2001, I think, when he yeah. wrote this. So he's writing this as a kid. Having you know, just went, graduated himself. From Yale. Having just graduated from Yale and gone to Harvard Law School. So this is a kid who but for a few other circumstances, could have been Ben Shapiro. 
Yeah. This guy, if he was just a little luckier and maybe a little more uh, slick with his presentation, could have been Ben Shapiro. That's who this guy is. Mm -hmm. He says next quote. His arguments in God and Man at Yale were straightforward. First, Yale was undermining students' faith in Christianity. <laughs> I find that hilarious. Second, Yale was promoting economic collectivism. Again, come on. Very funny, yeah. And third, alumni should exert their influence to reverse the course of pedagogy at Yale. So that's that's a good summation, I think, yeah, of what's good. actually yeah. in the book, what's what's being presented to us. Skipping down a little bit, he says, quote, how did a book about pedagogy at Yale inspire a Philippic against totalitarianism? Uh, this guy's such to, a honestly, just write fucking just normal words, you prick. Well, that's a, that's a response to someone who wrote a criticism of uh, uh, Buckley comparing him to Goebbels. <laughs> he continues, quote, Ashburn was not alone in leveling such charges at Buckley. Every one of his critics construed the book as an attack not only on Yale, but also, despite Buckley's professed belief in democracy and freedom, as a veiled attack on the very nature of a free society. And that is, like, we, we read, and I don't think we talked about it just now on the show, but when we were reading Buckley's own mm. introduction, um, he is very much, we talked about, you know, how people are trying to portray him as something he's not. He is very much against a free society. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, and, and and interestingly, that's Knowles gets that in his introduction. Yes, yes, we'll get so to he, it. So he get we'll we'll get onto it, but he gets it better than this guy does because this guy's like, oh, Buckley would never like Buckley would never say that, and then Knowles is like, no, he did, and it's good. Yeah, well, and here's the thing. Also, uh, Knowles is a pretty open piece of shit. Uh, who doesn't try to hide the fact very much that he's a piece of shit. Yeah. I mean, he does a podcast for the Daily Wire with Ted fucking Cruz. Um, we'll talk about him in a few minutes. But anyways, it continues on a little bit. Quote, if we indeed know that democracy is superior to totalitarianism, then we have a duty to defend and advance this truth rather than to maintain a falsely open question. In sum, Buckley argued, Yale should restrict academic freedom such that Christianity and political freedom always upheld. So that, uh, again, going back to Dinesh D'Souza, we have watched two Dinesh D'Souza, <laughs> I want to call them mockumentaries, because that's really what they are. I think both of them had scenes of Nazis storming universities and yeah, taking away did. professors and they're throwing papers around and stuff. Sure. But this guy is pretty much admitting, yeah, I mean, that's basically what Buckley wanted. He wanted the stormtroopers to go in and drag off professors who were saying things that Buckley interpreted as being anti-Christian and collectivist. And that's the scary part. It's that these people have such stupid definitions of those things. Like, you and I are atheists. That is not inherently anti-Christian. Personally, I think Christianity is a bad thing. Certainly not something I think the world would be better off with than without. But the fact that I don't believe in it is not inherently anti-Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's just not how that works. Um, the same thing with like collectivism. Just because it's not 100% free market does not make something collectivist no. or socialist. Those are just stupid dichotomies they've drawn up to let them attack everything they want. That's how they get around to supporting Nazis because, mm -hmm. you know, well, at least the Nazis aren't socialists, right? It's that sort of thing. It's how they get around to supporting. Until they lose and then they are. Yes, absolutely. 
So anyways, um, there's not a whole lot more. There were some interesting things, but there's not a ton to talk about in this. It's more interesting in looking at the guy who wrote it and his interpretation mm. than it is actually looking at the book itself. And he does, I think when we get to Knowles, we're going to see um, that it's sort of this, this over time, especially after he died and Knowles wrote his in 2021, the deification of Buckley and people yeah. ignoring all of his faults because... <laughs> None of these people mentioned Bucky, Buckley's open and obvious racism in 1951 at the time he wrote this book when he was pro-segregation. Mm -hmm. Nobody bothered to mention any of that. But they do try and erase the very clear authoritarianism that is inherent in his desire to uh, demand that all professors do X and don't do Y. Yep. It's very, very well, clear. I mean, it, it's interesting in this that this guy doesn't draw that out. But then Knowles, we might as well talk about Knowles now, I think. Um, well, I, I did want to say just the last little bit of this. He draws a line between a difference between supposed open society and free society. Mm -hmm. And says that in Buckley's view, the open society is what gives us totalitarianism. Yep. Uh, whereas the free society, which is not actually free because it's basically mandated Christianity, <laughs> um, is the actual freedom. You know, the, you have the freedom to be a Christian and nothing else. That's that's the freedom that you have under this idealized society mm -hmm. that these people apparently want. I, I shouldn't say apparently want. Most definitely Statedly want. Statedly want. They've made it very time. clear over the years. But I'll read... Uh, the last paragraph of his uh, introduction, just because. Why not? He says, quote, After half a century, God and man at Yale remains a testament to the power of one man to stand up for the truth. Few realize today what courage it must have taken for Buckley to write such a book, knowing how much it would offend the very men who had tapped into the Yale elite. Buckley's philosophy of Christian individualism, which combined a distrust of the on omnicompetent Omnicompetent, yeah, that's the word, state with a defense of the truths of the Judeo-Christian tradition remains as much the core of American conservatism and indeed of the American tradition in our own time as it did in 1951. Let us hope that 50 years from now, Buckley's exemplary defense of the American patrimony will continue to inspire. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not a defense explicitly. Like Buckley never says this is why this is good. In fact, he says in the foreword that he's not going to do that. This isn't a defense of the American patrimony. It's a, it's a, it's a wish list. Well, I, I think it goes back to when Buckley said that he's not going to argue about whether Christianity or individualism, as he defines them, are good. He's just going to take it as given. But that's what I mean. It's not a defense, is it? It's not an apologia sure. for those things. It's a, it's sure, a... but remember, Benedict, these people think William F. Buckley is smart. These are dumb people. <laughs> yeah. Don't, so, I mean... Austin W. Bramwell, that's who wrote that. Uh, the W stands for Whaley. Um, <laughs> it does say he was a current student at Harvard Law School when he wrote that. Of course, I should mention uh, he was a part of the Trump Treasury Department cool. in 2017 before returning to the Millbank Law Firm, which, as someone who can uh, very much say I will never work for Millbank, um, can say is a piece of shit law firm because they hired this guy. It's, you know, it's a big law firm, but whatever. But they hired this asshole. Yeah, I'm never going to work there. I'm never going to apply. There's other firms I want to work at. Uh, so anyways, Ben, let's move on to the last introduction we're going to be talking about today. And uh, this is the one um, that uh, I think I the most interesting, before. honestly. Yes, very much the most interesting. And I've talked about my meeting of Michael J. Knowles mm -hmm. in a bar in D.C. 
And this introduction is everything I expect from someone as dumb as he was, as I experienced him in that, you know, one evening in a DC cigar bar where he asked me the question, oh, well, I do a podcast. You might have heard of me, right? Sure. He said that. But this is a guy who, me and a friend were at this No one I say that to has ever heard of us. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) But he actually expected me to know who he was. That was the best part. He actually expected that. Uh, We were at the cigar bar, and we happened to get into a conversation with a girl who was sitting at the table with him uh, because she was like an evening student at our law school, um, and I made fun of Tiffany Trump or something. I think I did. I think I talked shit about Tiffany Trump. And she got mad. Um, and so then it just, you know, we sort of combined our two tables together. We're talking. And somewhere along the line, Knowles started talking to me. And somehow, just because these people, they're the ones who bring this shit up, went into talking about Christianity. And I was like, nah, I'm an atheist. I don't give a shit about any of that. And that's the point in the conversation where he started trying to convince me to become a fundamentalist Catholic again. No. <laughs> Yes, he did. He very much did. And um, I don't remember all of his arguments. They were all bad. But I just kept making him angry by just being like, nah, that's a bunch of bullshit. And, And he just, no, he couldn't handle it. He didn't have any really good arguments because one of his arguments, one of the few I remember, because remember, we were drinking, um, one of the arguments I remember from him was that, well, you know, the Bible actually predicted the Big Bang. Because it says in the no. beginning, God said, let there be light. And that's that's what the Big Bang was. I was like, dude, that's just you taking an event and trying to say that a vaguely worded phrase is describing that event. (laughs) That's all that is. And that's when he won all the art. Well, you know, the guy who actually named the Big Bang was a Catholic priest. So? So what? And at some point along those lines of me just going like, dude, that's fucking bullshit. What are you talking about? He just got mad and huffy and clutched his pearls and went over to go talk to some guy who did recognize him That's from funny. his podcast. Okay. <laughs> That's enough of that. Let's talk about the what he's written. Anyways, it's a dumb guy. Um, yep. So this guy, William J. Knowles, like I said, he does a podcast for the Daily... Uh, Michael J. Knowles. He does a podcast for the Daily Caller. He did a podcast with Ted Cruz. Um, his credits at the end... I just I want to start with how it describes him at the end of this introduction mm. uh, because it gives a little, uh, you know, who the author is. It says he is the author of two books and host of several popular podcasts. Sure. His podcasts may be popular among a certain segment of dumb people, but Benedict... It says there that he is the author of two books, correct? Am I reading it, that right? It, I can confirm that that is Benedict, he has two books to his name, but calling him an author of two books would be uh, malpractice okay. because one of those, which he put out in 2021, is titled Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We can only imagine how stupid that is. The other one was published in 2017, it is titled Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Oh, is that the empty book? It is 200-something empty pages. Yeah. He is not the author of that book. I mean, no. How dare you put that in your own blurb that you authored two books? Honestly, that's pretty funny. I mean, the, the, the idea for selling that book is funny, but... I think trying to claim your that as a credit as an I, author. No, I think it's funny. I'm on board with that. 
fine. I'm fully on board with it. All right, so his introduction is four no, pages. No, no, Ben, here's the thing. I have to read this entire first page because it is hilarious. It is fucking hilarious. Okay, well, speedy, speedy voice. Here, here it is. Quote, William F. Buckley Jr., like his friend Ronald Reagan, has suffered much for being made into an ism. Fascism. Today, <laughs> Buckleyism, like Reaganism, conjures images of a halcyon era, era during the second half of the 20th century when conservatives were urbane, witty, and above all, anodyne. Liberals admit a strange new respect for the founder of the post-war conservative movement. They compare him favorably with the authoritarian, fascist, Nazi conservatives we see today. Docile centrists who style themselves right-wing join the left in this critique of modern conservatism, which they insist has betrayed in character and conviction the movement founded by Bill Buckley. Many people invoke William F. Buckley Jr., Fewer seem to remember what he wrote and said. Fewer still recall the reaction he elicited from prominent liberals, who responded to God and Man at Yale by calling him an authoritarian, a fascist, and a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Such facts remind us that nostalgia is history after a few drinks. Today's sentimentalists note well Buckley's wit and urbanity, which no public figure to follow him has managed to surpass. But they downplay his gumption and presumption. Mm -hmm. The effete liberals of the left and right who wax poetic about William F. Buckley Jr. today would clutch their pearls in the presence of the man in his prime. Again, written by a man who never met the guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true, but I do think it's right. Like I, I, I will I will say that I think that's probably the clearest side view of Buckley that, that any of the introductions offer. Absolutely. Because what he is saying there is, oh, they all pretend that the, the, the line we, there about we've fallen into we've, we've fallen into that trap of absolutely. oh like at least Buckley like As much as I try not to, we yeah, absolutely we've done have it. fallen into that. We've done it. But I think he's right. I think we should treat him how how he acted and how he wrote which is as, yeah as, as a, a piece of shit yeah <laughs> a lot of the time much like michael j knowles a piece of shit um yeah he brings but, up but the... essentially he's saying he was and we should be proud of that we should reclaim that and we sure. should be dickheads like oh yeah he's absolutely on page with that i mean uh let me read you a tweet from Michael Chait. No, I won't do that right now. I'll do that later. Um, no, he's absolutely on board with that. Michael Knowles is one of the shitbag right, mm -hmm. right? He's a guy who regularly, uh, you know, t all he does is tweet out bullshit, make what he thinks are snide, funny comments. That's his whole game. That's all he fucking does. And on the very next page, after what I just read, he has apologia for Buckley calling Gore Vidal a queer. That's what that is. Yeah, he it's also weird because he's like, oh, uh, Buckley instantly regretted it and apologized to Vidal for the public display of anger, but he doubled down on the substance of his attack. Yeah. What was the substance of his attack? There was no substance. Right. Other than well, he the... also tries to say that it's only because Vidal called him a Nazi, even though he was a World Which he War didn't II actually. Veteran. We know we know that he called him a crypto Nazi. Rather well, yes, than... but I don't know. I don't. We played that. It is a little hard to hear. It's a little garbled. What preceded all of that was... Buckley calling Vietnam protesters Nazis. Yeah, and then, and then but also, if anyone's a uh, crypto Nazi, it's you, my friend. Yes. And then Buckley, Buckley, Buckley called him a slur and <laughs> threatened to punch him in the face. Yeah. But then Knowles goes through a little bit of Buckley's history. He talks about how he wrote his next book about how great McCarthy was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the McCarthyism. Fact that, yeah, and the fact that he continued to 
defend McCarthy throughout his life and career, despite the fact that McCarthy was obviously wrong and we use him as a synonym for bad things Mm -hmm. because he was bad. For paranoia and looking (laughs) for things that aren't there, yeah. But I think Knowles, I think the subtext of that is that Knowles is on the side of saying, no, no, we should be McCarthyists. We should scream about hidden communists where well, none exist. I mean, that's and... the thing with the open society. Again, it's, you know, it's the argument between Leo Chern and, and, um, and Buckley here, where Chern is pro-open society um, in the sense of an actual open society. And Buckley says, no, we need an authoritarian exclusion mm-hmm. of certain, you know, it's, it's kind of a perverted or a warped sense of the, the, um, the liberalism problem of like uh, or the the, the problem yeah the problem the, of tolerance pro- yeah, yeah paradox yeah, of tolerance paradox yeah. of tolerance yeah that's exactly it so where where buckley has the very simple answer of no i'm not going to be tolerant of anyone that doesn't have my views or like anyone who i decide shouldn't have the right to to yeah. to uh speak on the marketplace of ideas and he's very very uh outwardly outspoken about that yeah, he's, he's not trying to hide it at all. I, I 100% agree with you on that. And what he's talking about, um, you brought up the paradox of tolerance things. Buckley did say, as Knowles is quoting him, that he doesn't think you should have to protect the liberties of a Nazi or a communist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously, I think Buckley understands the paradox of tolerance, but he wants to use it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. He wants to use the paradox of tolerance as a weapon to attack people he doesn't like right buckley and me would agree on the nazi part that we shouldn't have nazis um buckley and i would disagree when it came to you know catholic fascists the francoists because he is a fucking catholic fascist yeah and i would be like no fascism isn't just bad because of the nazis Mm -hmm. it's because fascism was a bad thing yeah and i i think we forget that you know, we talk about the USSR being an authoritarian regime at the time, and we, we, we think that that's the big influential one, but we were talking off-air about this, and, um, you know, the likes of Franco and Salazar were very much still around in the 50s and 60s, even through the 70s, yeah. so uh, as, as models for this kind of Catholic fascism. Well, and then also throw in things like Pinochet, right? Because the modern shitbag uh, right that likes yeah, to walk I mean, around with Pinochet did nothing wrong t-shirts and shit like that yeah. are but the I, same well, people who would be praising Salazar and Frank. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that Pinochet's a little after. He's, he's late 80s or yeah, mid-80s, but... Um, yeah, I mean, sure, so, but Buckley was alive during that. No, during, no, sure, yeah. sure, sure. But but in in Buckley's formative years is what I'm saying. As, yeah. as, a, as a thinker, Salazar and Franco were very much around um and and successful as as models of uh, or you know aspirational models of of a of a certain kind of catholic authoritarianism and Sal- i mean salazar nostalgically is viewed that way now by by a large amount of the right wing so yeah sure well, uh, next thing uh, noel says that i did want to highlight um he says quote Few people have ever valued the exchange of ideas as much as Bill Buckley. Again, he keeps using Bill. Yeah, it's a bit presumptuous. Yeah. Who's firing? Yeah. Whose firing line remains the longest running public affairs program with a single host in television history. But unlike so many self-styled Buckleyists today who make idols out of free speech absolutism and the marketplace of ideas, William F. Buckley understood that marketplaces must have rules Mm. and skepticism has utility only when it leads to conviction. That is him recognizing that basically his entire... Because Michael Knowles is only 31. He is a year older than you and I. 
Um, so he is, you know, him and us and uh, Ben Shapiro, we're all sort of in the same age range cohort. Charlie Kirk, everyone, and everyone over there, including very much Michael Knowles, does the right-wing free speech grifting mm -hmm. of college campuses need to allow me. One of the big oh, things yeah, yeah. he's known for was going to a campus. I don't remember which one. It was like University of Missouri or someone and doing a transphobic speech like two years ago, like 2019 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay. Very much on the right-wing free speech college campus grift. That's all he was doing. But he's he's openly acknowledging it here that Buckley would be against that grift at the very least. He would support these people going out and saying the terrible things that they're saying because he was a shitbag just like them, but he would have been against the grift In itself. theory. In theory. Because he would recognize, no, it's no, we should be able to, to be fascists and block these people from talking mm -hmm. and only allow speech that we like because that's the way that it should be. Yeah. That's what it really should be. Yeah. So he yeah. continues. Just the last little bit, the last Yeah, paragraph. I don't think there's that much else worth yeah, no, talking I just, about I'm here. Just, the yeah, only thing the worth bit. reading. The only thing worth reading is this last little tiny paragraph mm -hmm. here, which is is really sort of I think supposed to be just an artistic flourish. Yeah, but, but it's bad. But it is he, bad. He, he he tries to do a linguistic flourish, but then fails to think of a third word. I'll let you read it. He says, "Quote: Superstition, subversion, and hoaxes." <laughs> Doesn't even scan Come right. Come on, scams! You could have done scams. Yeah, that would have been so. Much that would have been your third S. Continue to abound on the. He, although he would, of course, have to recognize that he is one of those. I'll get to it, it in a moment. Matter. Continue to abound on the campus and around the country. Today, those three devils disturb even the legacy of William F. Buckley Jr. For which reason there has never been a better time to reacquaint ourselves with the man in his own words. Now, Benedict, mm -hmm. superstition subversion and hoaxes mm. continue to abound around the country. Michael J. Knowles, Benedict. He's a good buddy. Seems to retweet a lot. Jack Posobiec, cool. best known for the being hoaxes. the primary figure in the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which held that well, he's one of the bigger ones. Yeah. I mean, he, Alex Jones is the only other person bigger than him, and I think he usually just let Posobiec come on his show and Cer talk about Cernovich it. Cernovich was big at the time. Maybe. That's it. hard to tell. Anyways, loves to retweet him some Jack Posobiec, well-known conspiracy sure. bullshit artist. Uh, also, Benedict, uh, going back to, let's see, January 6th, 2021. Here's a Michael Nose tweet for you. Quote, the right-wingers storming the Capitol right now haven't looted enough Gucci stores to qualify them as mostly peaceful protest. Riot it is. Okay. That's, that's a Michael J. Knowles <laughs> quote for you. Thanks, man. From not that long ago. Also, Benedict, Michael Knowles has, throughout the entirety of the preceding year, promoted the conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was stolen. And cool. that Donald Trump did, in fact. But superstition, subversion, and hoaxes, Benedict, continue to abound. Yep. He is correct in that sentence. He is a piece of shit. He cool. can go fuck himself. But Benedict, Good stuff. Let's end there. <laughs> that is it for uh, the introductions to this book. We will be getting into the book proper next time we do this. So two weeks from now, we'll have an interstitial episode next week, and then we'll be getting back into the book. Uh, Benedict... I did mention, I have another Madison Cawthorn video. No, we don't have time. Next it's time. two minutes. No, it's two I minutes I refuse. Long. Next time. 
No, keep what it for the interstitial. No, I'm hanging up. Keep it for the interstitial. <laughs> All right. Well, Benedict has vetoed us watching another Madison Cawthorn video. I guess since he doesn't actually say anything in that video, that's fine. Anyways, anyways. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shoutouts on the show, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, and George Soros. Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's going to wear out my throat. Yeah. I keep doing that, George Soros. <laughs> Anyways, that's it for this week's show. Till next time. Batman. Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.